thought tonight I'd preach a sermon on the seven ways for a happy marriage, but uh, <laughs> I have to agree with Mark. We don't do that here. Uh, no, we don't. And may God's grace these that we never do. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Familiar passage. Mark actually alluded to it in his sermon this morning. This was the famous interview between Jesus and His disciples. We're going to be looking primarily at verse 18, but I'm going to read from verse 13 through 19. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He began asking His disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to you this evening, as it were, the evening sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise of our hearts and our songs, also, Father, a time when we come before the Lord, our Savior, to learn at His feet the sacrifice of our time, that we might be disciples. And so we pray, Father, that by the blessing of Your Holy Spirit, You would open Your Word to our understanding, our hearts to Your will, our minds to, to being transformed into Your will and mind. We pray that You would bless our time together and that it would be fruitful for Your glory. And for our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Most of you know that I have a great fondness for history. Uh, I think it was engendered in me by my father, who was a voracious reader. Uh, and my uncle, with whom I went on camping trips to various forts and battlefields all up and down the eastern coast. And the Revolutionary War was, was probably my initiation to history, uh, learning quite a bit about it and, and uh, reading a lot about it. And then as I, uh, after becoming a Christian and uh, remaining in uh, what would be called the conservative wing of Christianity for these past um, almost, well, I guess 40 years now. Um, I think it was 1978, I didn't even realize that. Uh, these past 40 years, I, I've learned that uh, many Christians believe that the American Revolution was, was nothing, but, um, nothing but, but God and good. That it was uh, divinely ordained. Well, yes it was, because it came to pass. Uh, that it was blessed by the Lord, that it was a command even by the Lord. And it is true that many pastors, many preachers during that time used the pulpit to encourage the revolution. And uh, one actually signed the Declaration of Independence uh, so that the church was heavily involved 
in the independence movement and the revolution that broke the colonies off from Great Britain. But did God command the American Revolution? Does God bless the USA? Now those are almost radical questions in some churches. Unless the answer is, uh, sometimes they're just rhetorical questions because the assumed answer is yes. Now, personally, I'm probably less interested in being British now that I've been there than I ever was before. So, so you know, the, the idea of not being an independent United States, not being the country that we are, is, is, is really not pleasant. And, and so I, I do thank God for the freedoms that we have in this country. As I was talking this morning in Sunday school, the very uh, experiment of the United States in so many aspects of human life is really something to be thankful for. But we can do that without what I call retro-sanctification. Sanctifying the past after the fact. And that is a lot of what happens um, in history. And we go back, especially in American history, and we sanctify, we even um, Christianize men who in their own life and in their own writings were anything but Christians. Many of them were deists. But we want to have that veneer of Christianity over that uh, so that we can, we can teach our children that the American Revolution was God and good. But the nation's birth and the role of the church in it engendered a spirit that in large measure has destroyed the church. The spirit of independence. And so the church helped to raise up somewhat of a, a monster that then turned upon the church through rationalism and then just through worldliness and independence and has caused the church to be a shadow of what she ought to be in a country where she has been given the greatest wealth and the greatest freedom of any nation in history. Our church is anemic. Our church has failed to, uh, to, to manifest the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Our church strives to answer the moral problems of our day, as Mark was referring to this morning, with legislative action. Our church that chooses politicians who would not be acceptable members in any of their churches but are accepted as leaders because their faults are, are considered minor compared to what they might be able to do for the church politically. A lot of this has come from that spirit of independence which has led individual believers to focus more on what God has done for me rather than what God has done in Christ in his church. Me and Jesus, that's what matters. And having been a pastor for many years, I've heard that a lot. That whenever a discussion turns to the church and the role of the church and really the glory of the church, the response is, well, I think what's really important is my walk with the Lord and what Jesus is teaching me. And that's primarily what you're going to find in the Christian bookstores as far as the, the self-help books. It's going to be, you know, live your best life now. And this idea of, of a church, a corporate community of believers, is, it's history. 
It is something we read about or talk about in church history. It's not something that we live anymore. The word private has all but displaced the word corporate in Christian conversations. And I think that's, um, that's very dangerous. In fact, I think it, it may be too late that the church, Protestantism especially, in the United States has so completely lost its bearings that now it does offer little more than, than self-help pep talks so that the individuals can latch onto and use in their daily life. And so over the past few years, not really consciously, but maybe powerfully subconsciously, there's been a, an attempt to reverse the trend, at least in our own minds, and to refocus on the church. Jesus says here in verse 18, and, and, and the way he says it is so emphatic, um, the, the personal pronoun, the first person pronoun is, is used, which is very unusual. He says, and I myself will build my church. I myself will build my church. Or it could be interpreted, and I will build for myself my church. It's like Jesus is saying, I have a project. It's mine. I'm going to do it for myself, and it will be my church. And, and just the, the intensity of what he is saying here, and then he goes on to say, the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. In other words, this is not going to be a minor work that I do. It will be something that is powerful, something that is enduring, and something that will bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. His church. And so it, it, it has occurred to me many times over the years as I read about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, especially that passage that Paul, where he says that God has given Christ to be the head of the church, who is his fill, fullness. The church is the fullness, Paul says, of the one who fills all in all. Now that's something that I can't get my mind around. But if you pull all these things together, all the things that Jesus says about the church, you realize that for him, it's something very important. And I won't say, go so far as to say that it's more important than the individual believer. But I will go so far to say that apart from the church, the individual believer is nothing. And so an attempt to bring focus back on the church has been behind some of the Sunday school classes that I have taught, creeds and confessions. The idea of what is it that defines fellowship? Something that our church has, has sadly come across very much in this community. And that is that unless we subscribe to a particular confession, and, and really some groups don't care which confession that is. So the... the um, what is it? Evangelical Confessing, the Association of Confessing Evangelicals. I think that's what it is. Very large, excellent group, wonderful men. They, they just want you to confess something. They, they really don't care. They have a whole list of Protestant confessions. If I joined, I'd have to say I, I confess to all of them, in as much as they're correct. And none of them, in as much as they're wrong. But this idea of confessionalism, has been used now as a litmus test as to whether you are truly evangelical and whether you can join the club. And, and sadly, we've not been allowed to join the club. Reformation and Anabaptist heritage. Where have we, where have we come from? What does church mean? We're going to talk some about that tonight. 
The Christ and Culture series that Tim taught, visited and revisited, the idea of what is the church in culture. And, and, and really, many of the comments from our own congregation, many of your own thoughts during that series was, you know, why do we have to be anything? Why can't we just be me and Jesus? You know, just me and Jesus walking through this land till I cross the river, you know, and end up on the Canaan side. That, no, that's not what I will for myself build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower. The study in the book of Acts, which actually this evening's sermon is an introduction to that because we're returning, Lord willing, to the book of Acts next Sunday morning as Mark will be taking over the Sunday evening. And I believe that the next Bloodline series is going to be on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. The church is important. This is not an attempt to return to some ideal of community. Now, that, that's happened a lot. It was really big back in the 70s. Okay, that you, you, you're going to return to a New Testament church. And we're all going to live together, and we're going to be hippies together, and, and that, that didn't work. Okay, I'm not trying to do that. In fact, I've found in my study of history that... Most of our post facto ideals of community never existed in actual history. That when we, you know, we look back to a time, the good old days, okay, then, then when we actually go back and read about them, we find out they weren't all that good. In fact, these things are bad okay, compared to what was going on. So there's no attempt to try to return to some ideal of community or cloister that cannot be recovered, even if it ever really existed. Nor is this an, an attempt to lay a guilt trip on anybody for not doing enough in the church. Now, our church, I think, is an ideal church to preach a series on the church because almost everybody is involved in doing something. Tremendous amount of concern. There was a tremendous amount of concern expressed today for Sarah Powell, whom most of us don't know. So our friendship with Sarah goes back many years. And so many of the, of the old guard know her very well, and many of the new have never met her. And that doesn't matter. The prayers, the, the help that people give to others. So there would be no attempt to, to lay a guilt trip on our, even such mundane things as our giving. The financial support of the church is actually as high as it's ever been. So I can honestly say that there are no ulterior motives in talking about the church, because from that perspective, things are pretty good. But I do think that there's still a lack of understanding in our own minds, and even my own. And that lack of understanding of the church causes us to not to live according to what we read, especially in books like the book of Acts. We do not understand the undeniable significance of the church in God's eternal plan of redemption. And I say undeniable, not because... It isn't denied. It is. It is denied, sadly, quite frequently in the modern American church, that the church really is, is of any importance. I can worship anywhere I want or nowhere if I choose. I don't have to be in a church because God is everywhere. So, you know, so the, the significance of the church in God's redemptive plan is denied. But from a biblical perspective, it is undeniable. I mean, if somebody wants to jump off a building and deny the forces of gravity, they will not change the fact of gravity. 
And if somebody wants to deny the significance of the church, the centrality of the church in God's redemptive plan in Christ, they can do that. But that will not change the reality. It will not change God's mind. He will, he will not suspend gravity because that person who jumped is a believer. And he will not suspend the importance of the church because that particular believer is sincere at heart. He is building his church. We're even called living stones being fashioned to be placed into that spiritual habitation. Jesus had much to say about the church. And um, so did many in the history of the church. And so I want to kind of review some of the contending views. Now, the institutionalized church of the Middle Ages is not where we're headed. The idea that everyone who was born in the community was born a Christian, everyone is baptized into the church, and grace is mediated to them throughout their lives by the priest in the church, that's not what we're talking about. And the deliverance from that institutionalized church that we were graciously given in the Reformation is something that we should be thankful for. Because in that world, corporate identity with everything, an individual was nothing. And I, I don't think that's right either. That's the pendulum too far on one side. But now in American Christianity, we've gone too far on the other. Where the individual is everything and corporate is nothing. And I think we need to bring the pendulum back. But the Reformation brought about anything but a consistent view of what the church is. I'm going to go through three of them right now and then add a fourth. We've been talking on Sunday in Sunday school about the Anabaptists. And this morning I mentioned that the Anabaptist view of the church is that it is a, a voluntary society. Now what they meant is this. Because the church is the household of true faith, membership cannot be claimed by birth nor compelled by force. Now, when you put it that way, it's like, okay, I, I can handle that. I can't be compelled into a church, nor do I gain membership in a church because my, my father was a deacon or my grandfather was a charter member. Those things are meaningless. It is the fellowship or the household of true faith. Now, there was much discussion during the Reformation of, of how to bring about reform in the church without completely destroying the fabric of society, which was oriented around the magistrate and the priest. And okay, we don't understand that anymore, but, but when you went to a town, if you go to a town in Europe and you want to find the cathedral, walk up, just keep walking up, because the highest point in the town will be the cathedral. It will be the center point, and that was the focal point of their life. Now the reformers were going to change all of that, but they felt that they had to be careful that they didn't destroy the fabric of society. And so they accepted what is called a mixed multitude within the church. They accepted it as, as unavoidable that there would be both believers and unbelievers in the church. The Anabaptists would not accept that. They believed, and I agree with them, that in as much as possible, the church belongs to believers. The church is not a place for a mixed multitude. Discipline in the church is intended to weed out those who by their rebellion do not belong. And in fact, to say that the wheat and the tares can exist 
peacefully together is to understand nothing of farming. Because the weeds destroy and take the nutrients from the plants. You don't want weeds. And in the church, the same thing is true. And that is when you have a, a large percentage of people who are worldly, pagan, unbelievers, then that church will be soon dead. It is a cancer. And so the Anabaptist said, you can't, you can't do that. You can't mandate attendance in a church in order to preserve civil society. The church is a voluntary society. That's what they meant. What they did not mean in calling it a voluntary society is that you could go to any church you want to or no church as you want to for as long or as little a time as you want to with no responsibility or commitment. Now that's what it means today. The idea of a voluntary society, which is what the church is called today, simply means that we can come and go as we please. No commitment. No responsibility. Now, you will not find that in the Anabaptist writings. They were <coughs> profoundly committed to each individual, not just the pastor, but each individual profoundly committed to the health and well-being of that fellowship. Another view of the church from the Reformers is that it is the school of Christ. This is primarily the Reformed view, and especially seen in Geneva under John Calvin. A school of Christ. What they meant by that is the church should be the fellowship of disciples, all seeking to learn from the Master through His Word and by His Spirit. The church should be a place where Believers are trained in righteousness through His Word. A, a place where people come to seek to learn the will of God as it is revealed in His Word. That the leaders of the church should be men who are capable of doing just that teaching, which in the Catholic Church at that time was not the case. The priests of that time, it was, it was, uh, it was fortunate if they knew enough Latin to perform the Mass. That's it. They were essentially an illiterate and ignorant lot. And they did not guide the people. They were not as the Levites were supposed to be. Teaching the people in every community the law. And so the reformers came in and said, no, that's not what... The church is a school of Christ. It's a place where we learn about our master and what he has to say. But what they did not mean is that a believer may stay or leave, attend or not attend on the basis of whether the teaching is pleasing to them or stimulating to their mind or encouraging or dealing with seven ways to a happy marriage. If they did not mean even what was going on in Corinth where the people were saying, well, I am of, of Cephas, so I am of Apollos, I, I am of Paul. The idea that, that Christians can, can pick and choose based on the teaching what they want to hear. Now that is what has led to denominationalism. Many of our denominations, especially within the, the, more, the, the broader concept of theology, for example, covenantalism versus dispensationalism or, or the other isms that kind of describe a broad category, and yet within them there are a multitude of churches, and they are separated primarily by taste. In Reformed churches, that taste has to do with the pastor. Whether you like so-and-so's teaching or not. Okay. That is not what they meant. 
They didn't have that kind of liberty. They didn't have that kind of availability of churches. And so the commitment that you're supposed to have from the, the idea of a, a voluntary society means an, an attendance upon the teaching in the church and an awareness within the congregation that we all see is in a mirror dimly. And therefore, we believe the plurality of elders helps to bring kind of a plurality of teaching from a singularity of God's Word. Different perspectives on God's Word. And so hopefully people are not tired of, of one person's teaching versus another. And, uh, and yet, many times people leave. People come, and then they leave because of the teaching. That's not what the School of Christ is about. It places a responsibility not only on the elders of the church, the pastors, to teach the Word of God, but it places a responsibility on every single believer to sit at the feet of Jesus as a disciple and to learn. A third view of the church is that it's a safe haven. This is a very popular one today. It's very popular among fundamentalists, um, Pentecostal holiness churches. The idea that the church is a safe haven, what they mean by that is the church is a safe place apart from the world where the love of Christ knits the hearts of believers together as one. Anybody have a problem with that? I don't. The church ought to be a, a safe haven. But what is, it has become in our day and age is that the church building, or in many cases campus of buildings, has its own coffee shop, its own movie theater, its own bowling alley, its own bookshop, so that the believer need rarely to touch the world lest they become defiled. It hasn't become just a safe haven. It has become a cloister. It has become a walled community. Gated. Many of them are gated. Isolating the church from the world. And I don't think that is what is intended by the idea of a safe haven. There is a fourth that I want to mention. And that is the, the view of the dispensationalist that the church is plan B. And as I've done with all the others, what they meant, you know, what they meant, what they meant, I, I'm going to say it doesn't matter what they mean because they're just wrong. There's nothing good to say about it. I will build my church for myself is not plan B. It's plan A. Amen. Intended from eternity past for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And so we need to say no more about that. The valid views among those that I mentioned, and I think the, the, uh, the four, they are, the three of them are valid. They are, are no better than approximations to the truth. The idea of the church as a voluntary society, that it's a, a household of true faith, that it's not supposed to be a mixed multitude, but rather by the confession and the lives that we live, we give testimony to the work of God's grace in each one of our lives. That's true. That it's a school of Christ. You know, I had somebody say to me once that, oh, you're a, you're a teaching church. Yeah. There are others. I, I guess there are. There are others that don't teach. But it is a school of Christ. It is where we, as believers together, go into God's Word knowing that it is profitable. It is, it is able to make us 
ready for every good work, training us up in righteousness. It is a school of Christ. Also a safe haven. This ought to be a place where a believer feels safe. A home. A second home. And sometimes safer than the first one. A place where they are accepted and loved in Christ. Though they may have different views of life and even of some aspects of doctrine. At best, these views, however, individually, singularly, are simply facets of the gem that is the church. And I've been reading and, and, and hope to bring this out more in the ecclesiology study, but uh, the things that, that the Bible has said and things that men have said about the church are, are really very, very uplifting. Changing a perspective uh, from a private discipleship, a private devotion to a, a corporate fellowship, knowing that in the church, the, the sum is greater, or the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. In Ephesians, Paul likens the church to the body. And he talks about the contribution of every joint and every ligament. Now, in, in Corinthians, he points out that, that that has a bearing on when one member suffers. And I think we've all, maybe not Sasha, but all of us have experienced you know, parts of our body that don't work as well as they used to. I have bursitis. You know, and, and so for two and a half months, one part of my body has let the rest of my body now. Just like Paul says in Corinthians, the rest of my body is, is now trying to minister. You know, trying to, you know, you've had it. Or shingles. David had shingles quite, quite badly a few years back. The rest of your body does everything possible to relieve the discomfort of that one body. That's that one use of that metaphor. But then over in Ephesians, he talks about every joint and ligament contributing. And you realize that if you, if you look at your anatomy, no part of you is in itself functioning if it were not part of the body. And all of the parts and, and, and the things that we don't even see, the ligaments, the joints, the muscles, the tendons, the nerves, the things we don't see, the result is greater than the sum of the parts. It's kind of like you can be a Dr. Frankenstein and pull all the parts together, but it's dead. We're living. The church is living, and it's made up of individual believers. But it is so much greater than the sum of those individuals because of the Spirit of God. But what happens when a member of our body becomes renegade? When individualism takes over within the body? That's not good in a human body. That's essentially a, a cancer. And, and I would say that individualism is a cancer to the church. Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 2, again, a very a familiar passage beginning in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely, and even the merely is added, look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. There must be a way of understanding the centrality of the church in the redemptive purpose of God without losing the individual believer as a vital component of that church. 
Paul talks again in Romans about how each member has a gift that he or she brings to the overall life, that not all have the same gift, but that together the individuals, each has a prophecy, each has a psalm. Together the body is stronger, the church is stronger. This is Jesus' church. I think this is the story of the book of Acts that we'll be resuming, Lord willing, next week. Proper thinking and acting regarding the church motivates every believer to pray and to employ his or her giftedness towards its building and its blessing. How often do we think about the church? And I don't mean how often do you think about Fellowship Bible Church though that is the manifestation of the church in this location. But how often do we think about the church? My church, Jesus said. The church that I'm building. Our neglect of that concept in our thinking and in our acting basically says that he's not doing it anymore. He's given up on his project. We can understand that because we give up on our projects all the time. Our garage, that's why we invented garages. <laughs> that's where we put our projects. But God, Christ does not give up on his project. What he has started, he will bring to perfection. G.C. Burkhauer writes, Nothing creates more responsibility than thinking and speaking about the church as the body of Christ, as the mystery that belongs to him, my church. That stimulates responsibility within the believer to think, to meditate, to speak about my church. Not the way we use that phrase. Oh, well, we're having a revival at my church. That, that's how we do it. We shouldn't say that. You know, Fellowship Bible Church shouldn't be my church. It should be capital M, my church. Because, you know, man can build a church too and has often done so. And that could be, with a little m, my church. That's fine, because it's not going to go anywhere. It's not what we're talking about. It's not what Christ is building. And so when we think of my church, the my is capitalized and it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we return to the book of Acts, not as a history lesson on ancient Christianity. That, I hope, none of you view the book of Acts as a history lesson but as the living church of Jesus Christ, that we may so live ourselves. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would teach us about your church. We do not fully understand the concept or even where it came from, but we know that Jesus is building it, claims it as his own, and will without a doubt present it to you in all its glory as a bride unblemished and without spot or wrinkle. We pray, Father, that we might be a glorious part of that by your grace, that this fellowship might not be hampered by the cancer of individualism, but rather as individual believers, we might know our purpose, our, our part in contributing to the whole, to your glory, to the lifting up of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good stand, please, for the benediction this evening from... Closing chapter of Hebrews, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, 
through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.